I need to issue a quick correction. In both of these parts, I pronounce Corin Rainey's name as Corinne. A listener pointed out that I am emphasizing the wrong syllable in my pronunciation. So I want to first thank Alice for alerting me to this issue and also apologize for my oversight. As I say the name literally hundreds of times, I am so sorry that I messed up something as important as her name. In 2007, Corinne and Lloyd Rainey were in the early stages of what was looking to be a messy divorce. But they agreed to sit down one night after Corinne's dance class to attempt to resolve things civilly. The next day, Corinne was reported missing. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. If you're new, welcome back. If you have listened before, I want to just give two quick announcements at the top of this. We do still have tickets for the Generation Y 10-year anniversary live show. There are links in the show notes to both in-person tickets and virtual tickets, so you don't have to be in Kansas City to see that. The other announcement is that I will be taking some more time off than I usually do in the next month or two, maybe three. I guess we'll see how it goes. Just life stress and trying to catch up from some things that have been going on in my personal life. I've decided I just need a little bit of a break. I was first going to go every other week, but I realized that I need a little bit more flexibility than that. So, you know, you might get two episodes in a row and then a week off. You might get one episode, then a week off. You might get three episodes in a row and a week off. I really am not sure what this is going to look like, but if you just don't see an episode for a week, just think good thoughts for me because I will probably be working on some other stuff that doesn't help distract me quite as much as making the podcast does. So let's go ahead and get into this week's episode. This is actually going to be a two-parter. So if you're the type who like to wait to binge, you can pause this until Thursday when I will release the second part. But if you subscribe through Apple or join Patreon, you do get part two immediately. It's a perk I offer to always give regular episodes early and ad-free, as well as bonus episodes. So if you are interested, the link to Patreon is in the show notes. But if you're listening on Apple, you can just click any episode that says subscriber audio, and it will show you how to sign up. I want to thank Rachel for suggesting this case, although I will say I wasn't feeling entirely grateful when I realized that there were a combined thousand pages of legal documents from multiple actions for me to go over. But legally and ethically, this case has some very interesting elements that I think we need to honestly consider as a society. So it's definitely the type of case that I like to get into. For those who like backstory, go ahead and settle in because that is what we are doing here in part one. Part two will carry us through the investigation. Let's start with Corinne Da Silva, who was born in Uganda in 1963. Her family was from Goa, India, before they immigrated to Africa. 
Goa, India, where they left, was under Portuguese rule while Corinne's family was there, which explains why someone born in Uganda, whose family was from India, had a Portuguese last name. That really doesn't have anything to do with anything. I'm just adding it in here in case you were curious like I was, which is why I looked up the history of Goa, India. In 1971, Idi Amin seized power in Uganda, and he has been described as one of the most violent and brutal military dictators. The Da Silva family fled Uganda and settled in the Perth, Australia area as refugees in early 1973 when Corinne was nine years old. Corinne excelled in high school and went on to study law at the University of Western Australia. She was then a clerk with the Australian government solicitor's office. It was while working in that position that she met Lloyd Rainey. Lloyd was just a year older than Corinne, and they had similar backgrounds. He was born in Yemen to Indian and Irish parents, and he was five when his family immigrated to Australia. He, too, was a good student and also went to law school. In addition to their similar backgrounds and education, both Corinne and Lloyd were devout Christians, with Corinne being described as deeply spiritual. Lloyd and Corinne met at the AGS in 1986 while he was working as a solicitor. According to Lloyd, it was love at first sight. The two married in 1990 and had two daughters together. Caitlin was born in 1994 and then Sarah in 1997. As Corinne and Lloyd's careers continued to grow, so did their income, and they bought a newly renovated home in a quiet and beautiful suburb of Perth called Como. It was around the time of the birth of their second daughter that Corinne first started confiding in her sister, that while the couple looked perfect on paper, she wasn't happy and there were issues. And when I say she confided in her sister, I really mean confide, because as far as most could tell, the couple was as happy as ever. They entertained as a couple and they socialized as a family with only those really close to them eventually seeing some cracks. A few people would say they saw Corinne, the more outgoing and gregarious of the two, be snippy with Lloyd, and then Lloyd responding with silence. While we don't have a peek behind the curtain of anyone's marriage to know every issue they had, we do know about the big ones that were likely what put them on the path to separation. In the early 2000s, about 10 years into the marriage, Lloyd had an affair. The other woman knew Lloyd was married, but according to what he told her, it was an unhappy marriage. He complained that they argued a lot and their sex life had ended around the time their second child was born. Lloyd met this woman while he was doing another thing that led to arguing and stress in the marriage, and that was gambling. Lloyd's gambling wasn't some big secret. His sister said that his betting on horses was common knowledge, and he had done it for years. What was less known was just how much money he lost and how frequently. The woman he had an affair with would later say that she and Lloyd would meet for dates at the Tab, which is a betting shop, to gamble together. 
She would see Lloyd on a losing streak, and rather than walk away and cut his losses, he would get up and head to the ATM to take out more money. From what she saw, she believed he had a gambling problem. And Corinne also suspected Lloyd's gambling was getting out of hand, and she told her father, Ernest, that she had a hard time trusting Lloyd when it came to money. They both had good salaries, yet there would be financial issues cropping up. When Lloyd eventually went into private practice and his income was more tied to his client list and how many cases he was working on, Corinne didn't even know how much money he was making or where the money was going, but she suspected it was to gambling. Corinne's father, Ernest, wasn't entirely surprised by this. He said that one time he saw his son-in-law betting on horses with a friend. The friend would go collect money, but Lloyd didn't. Ernest made a comment to Lloyd about it, and Lloyd said that he bet on the longer shots. They were less likely to pay out, but when they did, it would be for a lot of money. Except they didn't win, and Ernest only saw Lloyd lose money. And Lloyd did have large losses. It's impossible to know how much exactly. But Lloyd did have accounts for gambling, which made it easier to get a rough estimate. In the 10-year period of 1997 through 2007, an investigation found that Lloyd had lost over $115,000 gambling. If we break it down to the average per year, we're looking at over $11,000. And if we average that for the month, it's nearly $1,000 per month. I imagine it wasn't spread out quite so evenly, so there may have been months or even years where Lloyd had fewer losses. But you can see why Corinne started wondering about their finances. They made good money, but they didn't make the type of money that you don't wonder about $1,000 a month missing. In 2003, in a move that surprised some people, Lloyd took a job overseas as a prosecutor with the Department of Public Prosecutions in Bermuda, which is located about 650 miles off the coast of North Carolina. This is pretty much on the other side of the world from his family, and a distance that was much too far for him to travel home often. This separation was for work. This wasn't a marital separation. However, it still seemed like a good time for the two to figure out what they wanted out of their marriage. They would discuss things over email, and it sounded like Corinne was open to fully reconciling with Lloyd if he would make an effort to curtail his gambling. But from what friends and family said, Corinne seemed a lot happier during this time period. She flourished as the solo parent, even though she was juggling two young kids and a full-time job. Thankfully, she had the income to hire help as needed, and she was doing well managing it all. While Corinne did not necessarily view Lloyd's relocation to Bermuda as a formal separation or as a permanent move, she did pursue a romantic relationship while he was overseas. This other man and Corinne developed what other people saw as a close friendship, 
but they did have a physical relationship, though they did not have sex. When Lloyd returned from Bermuda in 2004 after 18 months abroad, Corinne and this other man continued to meet for coffee occasionally, but the relationship was no longer physical. Eventually, the man became involved with someone else who just wasn't comfortable with their continued friendship, so they stopped most contact. According to the same people who said Corinne seemed happy while Lloyd was gone, they noticed she was less happy now that he was back. She seemed more stressed. Absence certainly didn't make the heart grow fonder in this situation, and it seems the separation and reunification cemented that the marriage wasn't working. But mostly for the sake of their daughters, the two stayed together and tried to work it out. They both felt the children benefited most from having both parents in the home full time. And from what has been said, Corinne seemed to go back and forth with how she felt things were going. She was still concerned about Lloyd's gambling and what that meant for their financial security, especially for their daughters. But she did email a friend at one point saying that she was optimistic that things were moving in the right direction. That optimism would not last long. By early 2007, it really looked like this marriage was headed to divorce. Lloyd told Ernest, his father-in-law, that Corinne was no longer in love with him and he wanted advice on what to do. Ernest, a traditional sort of man, told Lloyd that they needed to think of the girls. It was best for them to live with both parents, so he and Corinne needed to do whatever they had to in order to keep the family intact. Lloyd seemed inclined to agree with Ernest. However, it is hard to ignore that an unhappy marriage is unhappy for everyone, including the children. Lloyd had concerns about the impact that this discord between them had on the children. Corinne was still angry over the gambling, which hadn't stopped, and she was angry about Lloyd's affair, which at some point she learned about. She had also supposedly heard a rumor that he may still have been seeing other women. Months after Ernest had counseled Lloyd to continue the marriage for the sake of the girls, Corinne told Ernest that she just would not be able to live with Lloyd much longer. Corinne's main concern at this point was financial, particularly if they were going to separate. She began asking slash demanding Lloyd turn over all of his financial paperwork and bank accounts for her to see. The reason we know what they talked about was that Corinne and Lloyd communicated a lot through email, which should give you an idea of the breakdown of their ability to communicate face-to-face. It was May of 2007 that Corinne started really pushing, through email at least, to see all of Lloyd's financial accounts. Lloyd asked her why she needed this information, and Corinne said there had to be accountability in regards to their joint finances. 
She also said something about taxes, which does make sense with the timing. In Australia, the tax year runs July 1st through June 30th. Corinne wanted to sit down with their accountant and go over everything. So she set up a meeting with this accountant for June 8th. A few days ahead of that appointment, Corinne emailed Lloyd to ask for all of the statements for the tax year starting in July 2006 through June 2007. When those were not sent to her, Corinne emailed again the day before the meeting to indicate that she was still waiting and wrote that it was evident why she needed this information. It was to protect the assets for the sake of the family. Lloyd replied later that day, saying that her emails indicated to him that she was looking for a financial settlement, and he asked if that was correct. And if I can interject my opinion for a moment, I'm going to say that was probably at least partially what Corinne was looking for. Australian divorce law calls for an equitable split of assets, not a straight 50-50 split. And Corinne wouldn't know what was fair unless she knew all of the accounts Lloyd had, his income, his expenses, and other things in relation to some investment properties that they jointly owned. She found his secrecy suspect and honestly didn't understand why it was so difficult for him to hand over the information she asked for. Corinne went into the meeting with the accountant, who we will call Peter because that's his name, and she didn't have the info she wanted walking in the door. The bulk of the 30 minutes they spent together was used up by Corinne speaking about marital issues, like how Lloyd was staying out late, claiming he was out playing bridge. Peter understood Corinne to be saying that she found this an odd excuse and that she thought Lloyd might be having an affair. But that was not her primary concern. In fact, Corinne said that if Lloyd would just give her the info on his income and finances, she didn't really care what else he did. Corinne brought up Lloyd's gambling problem. She mentioned a loss of $20,000 when we know the real number was much higher and her concern over the investment properties. In all, she was mostly anxious about the lack of transparency over money. Peter told her that though they were both his clients, he couldn't give Corinne information on Lloyd's accounts without his permission. But Corinne still hoped that Peter would mediate between her and Lloyd. Because according to Corinne, they couldn't speak with each other without it turning into an argument. After this meeting, Peter did reach out to Lloyd. And the two of them met about a week and a half later. He asked Lloyd the same thing Corinne had been asking. Why wouldn't he just give her the financial disclosures she was asking for? Lloyd simply said he wouldn't give it to her, but he did not say why not. Peter did remind him that if he and Corinne separated and divorced, 
he would legally have to turn it all over. Lloyd said if that happens, it happens. While Lloyd was resistant to voluntarily giving this information over, he didn't seem to be that worked up about eventually having to turn it over anyway. Addressing Lloyd on a personal level, Peter suggested that the contention in the marriage just couldn't be good for anyone, let alone the children, and it might be time for Lloyd to find a place nearby to move to so he and Corinne could have their own space. Lloyd said that wasn't going to happen. He specifically said that he was concerned about how Corinne treated one of their daughters. One day, he got a call from this daughter, Sarah, while he was already at work. Usually, Corinne drove the girls to school before she headed into the office, but on that day, Sarah said Corinne got mad over something and left without her, telling her to find her own ride to school. Lloyd had to leave work to bring Sarah to school, and for some context, Sarah would have probably been about 9 or 10 when this happened. Lloyd then confided in Peter that he wondered if Corinne ever loved him or if she had stayed with him because of the money. Peter said Lloyd was pretty even-keeled on that point. He didn't have a lot of emotion in his voice as he wondered whether his wife loved him or not. Now, I will point out that there is a difference between feeling emotion and showing emotion, so we don't know which it is here, but I do have to say... This poor accountant, he just signed up for math. He was not interested in being a marriage therapist, yet he has both of these people coming to him with their issues. Peter did suggest a compromise for this money situation. He suggested Lloyd put money into an account that covered some of the expenses for the investment properties, which was a specific area of concern for Corinne. So that might serve to ease her anxiety in that specific area. Lloyd was open to it, but when Peter called Corinne to suggest it to her, she said no. She wasn't going to compromise on anything less than a full accounting of Lloyd's finances. Peter told her that Lloyd indicated he was not going to do that unless ordered to by the court, which certainly was not a deterrent for Corinne. Corinne sent Lloyd an email to tell him what Peter had said to her and hinted that Lloyd might find the fallout embarrassing. She said the only reason she would not seek the court order would be to avoid damaging his professional reputation. It wouldn't look good on his part as an attorney to put her through the trouble of getting an order rather than just turning over the paperwork voluntarily. Lloyd emailed back that Corinne was misrepresenting matters and that he had provided two solutions to Peter, and both of them were fair. Though Lloyd said in his email that he had alternative solutions, I do think it's fair to point out that that is not in line with what Peter remembered of their meeting. For the most part, I'm just summing up what these emails said rather than reading them to you, but I do want to read a little bit of emails back and forth from them just to give you an idea 
of the tone their communication had taken. This one is from Lloyd to Corinne. This is verbatim as it was published, and it is, quote, Your repeated efforts and threats to damage my career are disturbing. For example, I would appreciate it if you did not turn on the lights and abuse me at all hours of the night when I am asleep, as you have done so often in the past when you know I am in court the next morning. For a very long time, you have told me that you want your freedom, are only interested in the money I earn, and want me to leave our home. Each of these things was and still is hurtful. The present matter is being used by you to achieve that purpose. Your behavior towards me has become increasingly worse. End quote. Now, as soon as I read that, I thought, these are definitely lawyers. They know to put their accusations and complaints to each other in writing and to document behaviors in the event of a divorce and a custody battle. It seems Corinne believed that was what he was doing because the next day she emailed back, quote, Lloyd, stop your nonsense. This response is self-serving and plainly so. Don't embarrass yourself further, end quote. That particular email then went on to explain further why Corinne believed she had a right to know what the finances were. She did concede that they should try to live together in the house for the sake of the children, but they would have to see how things went. She thought everyone might be happier if they didn't live together. She wouldn't let the kids live in a war zone, but also didn't want a huge upheaval for the girls. It sounds like she was trying to figure out which was worse. So this gives you an idea of the tone and content of the emails as they went back and forth. In late June, Corinne called a family law attorney asking for a consultation. At this meeting, she was told that under family law rules, Lloyd had to provide a full financial disclosure in the event of a divorce. If he continued to refuse, they could be subpoenaed. Corinne then raised another concern at this meeting, something she hadn't mentioned before. She said that on the nights she told Lloyd she didn't want him to sleep in the bedroom with her, he would sleep in one of the girls' rooms, and she found it, quote, unsettling that he was sleeping in her room. The lawyer suggested that they set up an alternative sleeping space for Lloyd in the house, so that he did have somewhere other than the daughter's room to sleep. That same day, Corinne went home and had a bed moved into her home office space. She then emailed Lloyd at work and told him that she didn't find it appropriate that he shared a bed with the girls, but he wasn't welcome in their bedroom anymore. She said she put a bed in the study for him. Lloyd read this and resented the insinuation that there was something wrong with his relationship with his daughters. He told people about this email and even said it wasn't true that he was sleeping in his daughter's bed. And of course, he was concerned that Corinne was putting these things in writing. He was afraid that she was setting up a paper trail of accusations for leverage in the divorce and said it was not the only untrue thing Corinne had emailed him about, directly to his work email. 
One friend advised Lloyd to just move out of the house entirely at this point to protect himself. But he said that if it was Corinne who didn't want to see him, she could be the one to move out. When Lloyd emailed Corinne back, he also started documenting behavior he found inappropriate. He wrote to her that it was Corinne who caused the girl's distress, like when she woke up the house yelling at Lloyd. He said that their daughter pleaded with Corinne to stop insulting Lloyd, but she wouldn't. Corinne emailed back later that day, saying to stop using emails to, quote, misrepresent what happens and to produce written accounts for your own future benefits. So she was accusing Lloyd of doing what Lloyd was accusing her of doing. The truth was they were probably both doing this. And if you're going through a divorce right now, especially with children, you should be doing it too. Document everything. So emails like this continued for several weeks with Lloyd expressing concern that Corinne was damaging his relationship with his daughters and also putting his career in jeopardy. As for the career stuff, it is important to note their jobs. Corinne was a registrar at the Supreme Court of Western Australia, which is, from my understanding, a pretty high position for a solicitor. Lloyd, though he had previously worked as a prosecutor, was in private practice at the time. However, it sounds like he had some career ambitions that would require appointments or hiring at the same court that Corinne worked for. But even regardless of any career aspirations he may have had, Corinne's position was more high profile and more influential than I think it would have been comfortable for Lloyd given the discord between them and that they were both working in this legal field. Corinne ended up hiring a divorce attorney in late June and considered herself and Lloyd separated as of the date he started sleeping in the home office. At a parent-teacher conference for one of the daughters in early July, Corinne told the teacher that they were living together but separated, which took Lloyd by surprise because he didn't necessarily consider them separated yet, or at least not publicly so. Based on what Corinne told friends at this time, she didn't intend to make this divorce any easier on Lloyd than he made it on her. If he continued to resist moving out and refusing to make financial disclosures, she would uncover more and more about what she called his double life, meaning his family man persona on the one side and his gambling and alleged philandering on the other. As for Lloyd, he hired his own solicitor who sent Corinne a letter laying out their expectations, which included that Lloyd would provide her with the financial information in two to three weeks, though he did not concede that he was yet required to do so. The letter also said that Lloyd would not be moving out until the legal issues, like custody, were resolved. It also requested that Corinne refrain from sending so many emails and to stop acting in an abusive and aggressive manner toward Lloyd, especially if their daughters were around. 
Corinne met with her attorney about this letter, and she found the requests in it to be minor things that she wasn't worried about. Her main concern at this point, now that Lloyd was going to turn over financial documents, was custody. The idea of shared custody, the one week on, one week off scenario, was not something she believed would be in the best interest of the children. She said she had done most of the caretaking and that Lloyd would not know how to take care of them for his weeks. So she believed she should have primary custody and he would have weekend visits. Corinne also expressed annoyance to her attorney that she thought Lloyd may be riding her coattails, professionally speaking, and she wanted the separation to be public knowledge by the end of July. Lloyd had applied for an appointment as senior counsel, and she didn't want the people in the court who were making those appointments to think that it would impact her if he wasn't successful. Essentially, she didn't want him to have a leg up based on her relationships with those people at court. After this meeting, Corinne's attorney then drew up their own letter listing out Corinne's concerns and sent it off to Lloyd and his attorney. So now they both have legal representation. That legal representation is communicating back and forth with each other. So you think Lloyd and Corinne could cool it a bit on their own emails. But that is not what happened, and the emails continued, and the tone did not improve. According to Lloyd, Corinne was prone to hyperbole, and he said that the home wasn't the hostile environment that those reading the emails from the outside may think. And based on what people close to the couple have said, it really does seem like Corinne would snip at Lloyd or even lash out a little bit verbally at him, and he would just largely take it in silence. He said he was just trying to keep the peace, and remaining silent kept the house from being in a constant state of arguing. So it's not like he and Corinne were having these long, drawn-out arguments in person. But his emails did state that there were times that she would just yell at him in front of the children. So I think it is up to interpretation how hostile it is, even if one person just kind of blows up and it blows over quickly, versus both of them going back and forth for a period of time. I would consider both to be hostile, in my opinion. And Lloyd may be downplaying this a bit. He did record Corinne at least once during one of these moments where she was yelling at him. And we know that because he played it for an attorney. Now, his attorney did not think it was really evidence of anything, though Corinne did make a vague physical threat against Lloyd in it. The solicitor said it sounded like Corinne was venting, and it wasn't really something they could act on. But this may not be the only recording Lloyd had allegedly. Lloyd had, at some point in July 2007, brought up to a work colleague that he was hoping to get some home security installed. She knew a guy who knew a guy who did that sort of work, so she referred him on. The man she referred him to was Timothy Pearson. According to Timothy, he met with Lloyd in mid-July, and what Lloyd wanted was to basically 
listen in on phone calls. He supposedly told Timothy that it was all legal and not to worry about it. Timothy installed the recording equipment, putting the recorder in the roof space. His fingerprint was found in the area he said he installed the recorder, so there's no reason to doubt that he did this, and he did confess to doing so. Timothy said he would come back later, take the recorder, and transfer the recordings to a CD for Lloyd. He was paid a total of $2,000, which included equipment costs. The alleged purpose for doing this was to listen in on Corinne's phone calls to find out what her divorce strategy was going to be. We do know at this point that Lloyd was no longer trying to save the marriage based on what he told friends and family. He was preparing for a divorce, which was not his first choice, but what option did he have when his wife was set on it? Lloyd's attorney initially told him there was no reason for him to move out of the family home at that point because they could still be legally separated while living together. But in August, he did mention to his sister that he saw a place in the area he was considering moving to because it was close to the family home and the girls' school, so it would cause the least amount of disruption. It does sound throughout all of this that Lloyd was trying to mitigate the impact on their girls, but unfortunately, he and Corinne were both digging their heels in on what was the hardest thing about a divorce with kids, and that's custody. Though a friend suggested to Lloyd that he pursue full custody, he was against it. He didn't think it was in the best interest of the children to have either of them be an every other weekend parent. He wanted shared custody where they swapped each week. Corinne, however, did not want this. She didn't think it was as stable as living in one place full-time for the girls. She wanted Lloyd to have them every other weekend while she retained primary custody. He would also have the option to visit with them in the family home two nights a week while Corinne was at a line dancing class she took at a local community center. And at this point in this process, which is early August 2007, custody appeared to be non-negotiable for either of them. The other issue Corinne wasn't going to let go was the money issue. She still, months after first asking, didn't know how much money Lloyd earned in his private practice. She told people on the phone about her divorce plans, which consisted of exposing Lloyd's gambling and possible cheating if he wouldn't give her the financial disclosure and settle. Not only would the legal community learn about it, so would their children. She even said she was considering sending subpoenas to Lloyd's clients to find out how much they had paid him. These phone calls were made during a time after Timothy Pearson had installed some type of listening equipment in the house. If these calls were recorded, and if Lloyd listened to these recordings, he would have had his suspicions confirmed that Corinne was going to use everything as leverage against him. But we don't know if he listened. We don't know if these particular calls were recorded. 
And there are some pretty big question marks in regards to these recordings. But regardless of what Lloyd did or did not hear of Curran's phone calls, it wasn't like she was being shy about this in emails. So he knew the financial disclosures were going to be an issue, and he also knew they were just part of the divorce process. He met with his attorney on August 6th, and his attorney advised him to just try to settle everything out of court. And Lloyd said he was open to that. After this meeting, Lloyd went back to work, and he worked late that night. The next morning, on August 7th, 2007, Corinne called a friend and said that things were going well. After Lloyd had met with his attorney, he was ready to sit down and discuss things. They made plans to talk that night after Corinne's boot-scooting dance class, so around 9.30 p.m. On Corinne's agenda for this meeting was to at least come to some type of agreement on custody. For Corinne, this was the first step towards resolving the divorce. Those who saw Lloyd this day also noticed he was optimistic about this upcoming conversation. At around 6 p.m., Corinne took her daughter to dance class and met at a tavern with her friend Shayna, whose daughter was also at dance. This was a usual routine for them, and they chatted over lemonade while they waited for the dance class to end. Corinne told Shayna about the upcoming conversation and seemed very hopeful about it. They left the tavern around 6.45. Shayna picked the children up at dance while Corinne picked up takeout, and they all met back at the Rainey house. After they all ate, Shayna took the Rainey's older daughter, Caitlin, and her own child to a Gwen Stefani concert. They left around 7.15. Shayna dropped them off with the plans to pick them back up when the concert ended, which would have been between 10.15 and 10.30. Meanwhile, Corinne left the house around 7.30 for her line dancing class. She called out goodbye before leaving, and Lloyd and their younger daughter, Sarah, who was 10, were watching TV. Around 8.30, Lloyd read a story to Sarah before she read to herself for a little while. Her light was off around 9 or 9.30, pretty typical for a school night. Shayna then dropped the older daughter, Caitlin, off at home between 10.45 and 11 p.m. Corinne's car was not out front, which was only unusual since she wouldn't usually be out that late when she had work the next day especially not on this night because she had plans to speak with Lloyd. Lloyd invited Shayna and the other children in, but because it was so late, they declined and headed home. Caitlin had some schoolwork to finish, and Lloyd helped her with it. He told her around midnight that she had to go to bed because he was going to speak with Corinne when she got home. Caitlin said she initially had trouble falling asleep because she was worried that her mom hadn't come home, but she did eventually doze off. Lloyd said he first assumed Corinne had gone out for coffee or a drink after class and may have even been late on purpose. She knew he was going to be home, waiting to talk to her, so maybe this was some sort of game. He said it wasn't the first time she would stay out late without letting him know, so he went to bed. 
The next morning, on August 8th, Lloyd woke the girls up at 7.20 as usual. They found their school uniforms pressed and ready to go, which was also usual. Their routine in the mornings was that Lloyd would get up early, get everything ready, wake the girls up, feed them while he got ready for work, and Corinne would sleep in a little later. She would then get up, get herself ready in time to drive the kids to school. Caitlin went into her mother's room, and she wasn't there. Caitlin realized that everything looked exactly the same way it had the night before, including a jacket lying across the bed. Caitlin had also left some of her stuff in her mom's bathroom the night before, which Corinne would usually clear out, but all of her stuff was still there. So Caitlin was uneasy about things and wondering if Corinne had just not come home, which was out of character for her. Now, Sarah assumed Corinne must have come home late and then left for work early. Now, the strange thing was that Corinne didn't tell them she was going to do that. She rarely went into the office early, and usually she would tell them if there were any changes in plans or in their routine like that. Lloyd also thought it was odd, so he called a neighbor to see if Corinne was over there for coffee, which was something she would occasionally do but she wasn't there. Lloyd then called Corinne's office around 8 a.m. and got her voicemail. He left her a message chastising her a bit about how she hadn't told them she was leaving early and she had just left him to take the kids to school without any conversation about it. After Lloyd got the girls to school and then himself to work, he called her office again and left another message to let her know that they had been dropped off at school, but she needed to call and let him know in advance if he also needed to pick them up in the afternoon. Then a little before 9.30, Lloyd sent an email to Corinne mentioning the two phone messages that hadn't been returned yet and asked her about some information regarding who was driving who to an after-school activity. He also wrote that he didn't understand why Corinne didn't come home in time to talk and why she left without letting him or the girls know. He also let her know about an upcoming appointment he had made with a counselor and then said he was going to be busy for the day and not available to respond quickly to emails. Other than being a little annoyed about Corinne not showing up when he had expected her, Lloyd seemed like his normal self for most of the morning. But as the day wore on without a word from Corinne, he started acting more anxious. Lloyd made some calls to her coworkers around noon and found that Corinne had missed a meeting, which was very unusual for her, and Lloyd was surprised to hear about it. He said he hadn't seen Corinne since the night before, and he was going to head into her office. Before he did, he called Corinne's father, Ernest, and left a message for him to call back. Then he called her sister, Raylene, and from her perspective, Lloyd's information was disjointed. He said something about Corinne not coming to a discussion, and then their daughter was at a concert, and then Corinne's car wasn't there, and then she left for work early, and honestly, Raylene wasn't exactly sure what he was getting at but she didn't know where Corinne was, so Lloyd hung up and called a few more friends. No one had heard from her. 
Lloyd then left work to go to the Supreme Court building where Corinne's office was. Those who saw him said he looked like he was in a rush, and one person said he looked close to tears. And this was unusual for Lloyd. He was known for being a little quiet and very even in his manner, not showing a lot of emotion one way or the other. Seeing him agitated like this was unheard of. Lloyd was able to speak with the Chief Justice about Corinne being missing, and the Chief Justice granted permission for the police to check Corinne's work emails to see if there was a clue over where she was. And this is where the police initially got involved. Lloyd then called the school his daughters attended to let them know that Corinne was missing and that the police were involved. He told them that he had just told the girls that Corinne had gone to work early and that they had no idea what was going on. His concern was that the girls not be alarmed in this process of trying to figure out where Corinne was. He also called a babysitter to pick the children up at school because he was heading down to the police station to make a missing persons report. Lloyd called Corinne's dad, Ernest, and asked him to go with him. Her sister, Raylene, was already planning to meet Lloyd at the station. Ernest said he didn't want to go because at that point, he didn't consider Corinne missing just because she didn't tell her estranged husband where she was. Ernest instead said he had to go pick up his other grandchildren from school. Lloyd asked him to just let their father go get them while Ernest came to the station with him, and Ernest said he would come to the station, but only after he picked up his grandkids. So it was Raylene, Ernest, and the children waiting while Lloyd was taken into a room to give information on Corinne's last known movements. It's not entirely clear why he wanted Corinne's family with him at the station when they really didn't have any information to offer up. Lloyd gave the police all of the information we've already gone over, but when he was asked if there were any significant events prior to her disappearance, Lloyd said there were none, which does seem a little weird since they had been having a contentious divorce. But what Lloyd may have been thinking about was an immediate incident, like a big argument. When Corinne last left the house, she said goodbye to him and their daughter like nothing was wrong. He did tell the police that they had plans to discuss the details of their separation that night when she got back home, but she didn't show up. He said he assumed she came home after he went to bed and then left before he got up. But the assumption that Corinne ever made it home was a pretty big assumption to make. While Lloyd was at the station, two of Corinne's friends went to the house. The kids were there, so the babysitter let them in. They went into Corinne's room to check for her line dancing boots. They saw that one pair of boots was missing, so it looked to them like she had never made it home. The police also looked around the house and they noticed that jacket on the bed and also a coffee cup in Corinne's bathroom. So were those from that morning as she got ready for work and left early or were they from the day before? Lloyd said he had no idea. Since he and Corinne didn't share a room anymore, he couldn't say when the jacket was placed on the bed. 
The police were able to talk to the other students from Corinne's dance class at the community center. They said that she had arrived a little after 7.30 and she was seen by multiple people. Unfortunately, the time Corinne left wasn't entirely clear. There were no cameras covering the parking lot, so they had to go by what witnesses said. It seems most likely that Corinne left around 9.30 when a group of about 10 people had left. Had Corinne left much earlier or much later than everyone else, that probably would have been noticed. And if she left with a group of people, she wouldn't have been alone in the parking lot, which would eliminate that as a place she could have been intercepted by someone. No one at the center went out with her afterwards or knew of any plans for her to do so. They actually knew the opposite. Corinne had talked to someone during a break and told that person that she and Lloyd were going to talk that night. So it seemed most likely that Corinne left the dance class and headed for home. If she left around 9.30 and nothing happened in the parking lot, she would have gotten home no later than 9.45. Because of Corinne's reputation as a solicitor, a mother, and an overall responsible person, foul play was suspected pretty much right away. But the question was, did something happen to Corinne on her way home? Or did she make it home and something happened there? We have a missing woman and an estranged husband, and the police were well aware of the statistics. One officer had taken the time to covertly look at Lloyd's neck, hands, wrists, and anywhere else he may have defensive wounds or signs he had been in a physical altercation with Corinne. He didn't see any. In the days after Corinne went missing, Lloyd was seen upset frequently. He gathered photos for the media, and he completely cooperated with the police. There would later be accusations that he did not make his daughters available for police questioning. However, they made full statements early on, so that definitely was not true. As for the media, Lloyd was eager to have on-camera appeals with descriptions of Corinne and her vehicle. He even told his kids, that he was sure they would know something soon, thanks to the public attention on the case. And he was 100% correct. These appeals worked. Just before midnight on August 14th, 2007, someone saw Corinne's vehicle broken down on the side of a residential street in a neighboring suburb. The obvious issue with the vehicle was an oil leak and like a trail of breadcrumbs. On August 15th, the police followed that oil trail down the road until it entered Kings Park and Botanical Gardens. This park is about a 1,000 acres, and two-thirds of it is bushland. That would be a huge area to search, except they just kept following that oil trail. It went into the park, and they were able to follow it to Waddle Track, which is a trail in the park. 
and the oil path stopped about 50 yards or meters from the paved road. The cause of the oil leak became obvious at this point. Someone had driven the car down the trail, which was not open to motorized vehicles. When they backed out of the trail, they hit one of the posts that blocked the path from cars, knocked it over, and then ran it over. The post punctured the oil pan, causing the leak. The police now knew where to look. They formed a line search of the brush on either side of the trail. They didn't notice anything quite as obvious as drag marks, but eventually spotted an area of disturbed soil about 25 meters south of the trail. They photographed the spot before they approached it. The area was covered with leaves and branches, so if not for the soil looking newly turned over, it would have just looked like any other spot on the trail. Like I said, there weren't even drag marks leading to it, so it's very fortunate the searchers were observant. This is absolutely the sort of thing that could have been overlooked. When they approached and began carefully excavating the area, it did not take long before they exposed a human knee. They continued digging and found that this area was the shallow grave of 44-year-old Corinne Rainey. And that is where we are going to leave things this week. Next week, we will go over the evidence, circumstantial and forensic, the legal proceedings, and the aftermath of this horrible tragedy. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.